This is the Geoversive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Geoversive Earth Intelligence. This is Don Shelby, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for staying with us. And if you get an opportunity, push out the podcast to uh, your social media group. Tell them that they can go to earthintel.org, and it will be available, all of our podcasts. And if you think it's a worthwhile listen, please tell your friends about it. Joe Robertson describes to you a Versi Birth Intelligence podcast as your window into the frontier work of imagining, designing, forging, and securing a future of sustainable health and resilience, and it's open to all. Myra Jackson has always said, and meaningfully, this is a start of a conversation, perhaps even a start of a community. Let me more formally introduce them. Joseph Robertson is the Global Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Education, and he's the founder of Geoversive and Commission Director for the Food System Economics Commission. Myra Jackson helped develop the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. She's a diplomat of the biosphere. She remains a UN representative and focal point on climate change, and she is an expert on harmony with nature. Welcome to both of you. It's good to be back with you, Don, and to be ready here at the Ready for our listeners. Great to be here with you both. Now, the first thing I want to do, Myra, is turn a great deal of this over to you so that we can be uh, actually questioners on behalf of the audience, because I've been looking at a, a recent publication by the Club of Rome in partnership with the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, with which Joe is associated. The title of the document is Planetary Emergency 2.0, subtitled Securing a New Deal for People, Nature, and Climate. What are the takeaways for this publication? And before that, I should ask, are we in, Myra, a planetary emergency? By all signs, we are. I think that's where most people find themselves in agreement. Uh, they may describe the cause differently, but we're all feeling that we're in a world of increasing crisis and uncertainty. And uh, no matter where you land on the question of climate change or the science, that is uh, rattling fences, and you can feel it in every city center you walk in. Joe, uh, you knew this document was coming. Our way out of that emergency is not obvious. Back in March, Geoversive uh, signed the call to action on planetary emergency. And the reason that we did that is because we are experiencing an unprecedented level of disruption of natural systems, collapse of biodiversity, major climate disruption, extreme events, uh, fire seasons that seem to not be so much a season as a year-round phenomenon on multiple continents. So that's why we signed the call to action on planetary emergency. In terms of people's everyday understanding of this, as Myra said, you know, people are seeing the impacts in their communities, in their cities. We're seeing people who feel uh, more concerned about the viability of society as we have come to expect it to work. 
that is because we are experiencing pressures that are coming at us through natural systems, but also that are coming at us through uh, the economic system. These, these pressures are building up, the costs are building up. The emergency that we face is one that we have generated and that we can, if we make the right decisions, begin to uh, not only address, but hopefully reverse. So Joe, a follow-up question for you. One of the 2020 global instabilities that the Club of Rome has put together uh, in this document is under the economic system, economics and insecurity, endemic, and what it's called short-termism and profiteering. Can you talk in some detail about that? You know, short-termism and profiteering, uh, these are words that carry with them a number of other meanings that we also have to hear when we hear those words. When investors make the decision or when governments make the decision that they want to achieve a specific outcome and they're thinking in the very short term, they're thinking about how quickly they can get a return on investment. They're thinking about what it looks like to the public right now, what it looks like to their peers, what kind of competitive advantage they can get right now in the short term. They do not factor in the costs over the long term, especially if they'll fall on other people. And the profiteering piece also comes from that dynamic where you make a decision that you're going to try to extract value right now, today, as soon as you can for yourself or for your group, but you don't count the things that are going to happen to other people as a result or that are going to happen to natural systems as a result. And so those unaccounted costs fall on other people and you grab the profits. That's how this type of investment can turn into profiteering. There are plenty of people who are engaged in that kind of activity without a full understanding of how exploitative it is or how much they might be degrading the future opportunity for others or even for themselves. That is partly why we're in an emergency, because those structural forces that allow people to behave as if they're not profiteering, as if they are creating value, when in fact they're undermining value and they're taking from others while saddling them with the costs, those structural drivers need to be removed essentially so that we can do business in a better way so that we can build a world that works for everybody. One of the things, Myra, that I think you might feel closest to is one of the findings on the 10 urgent actions for transformation from all of this. And it has to do uh, with, in their words, to introduce an economic progress indicator that includes socio-ecological, human health, and well-being factors by 2030. Now, you have said before in previous podcasts that GDP just doesn't do it for the greater population of the United States and uh, the manner of quarter-by-quarter measurements on profitability for the richest of the few. Uh, is not exactly the way to measure well-being. Can you elaborate on that? It certainly is not. And one of the things that, of course, we're talking about is the planetary emergency. And that means that we do need to take quick action. So we don't have time to be waffling around this idea of what we need to measure. And so I do speak to that point and uh the reason that it comes up over and over again is as we look at this crisis, 
we know that we're looking at the combined threats. It's the convergence of events that has been predicted and talked about for 10 years plus. And we're at it. We're at this place where climate, nature loss, and human health pandemics that we're living through now are those events. So the scale of what's underway right now causes us to look at the nature of well-being in Earth systems, amongst wildlife, amongst people. And so health becomes an underlying premise here. And so we have to ask the question, if we look at GDP alone, and we look at cash, does it lead us to taking actions that generate, preserve, protect the wellness of the planet and people? Clearly, it does not. We get indications from GDP that war is a real big plus on the balance sheet, as well as prison systems and conflict. And so we do need to shift the metrics and what underlies those metrics. And this is a big part of what we're doing in the work as partners to the planetary emergency. Joe spoke of March. Many organizations signed on. We have over 260 partners now, and we've been able to accomplish a great deal working together, which goes to show when there is an emergency, it is a time for radical partnership. And so galvanizing our activities around these, the, the protection of the global commons is at the heart of what we aim to achieve with the Planetary Emergency Plan 2.0. Tell me a little bit about what you are finding in terms of the sign-on from people that you may or may not have heard from before when it comes to this message, planetary, uh, emergencies, TED Talks, web pages. Are you seeing growth out there, people who really wish to know more about this? People who wish to know more, but more important, people who are looking to be engaged at the levels in which they can make a contribution. So what we're doing is some good thinking together about how we can use the might of our collectivity to really move past the rooms in which we are considered the choir and get out to, you know, everyday people where the behavior as humans that we are, needs to change. You know, and I I really love the example. We have some excellent examples on the planet where we have, as people jumped in on behalf of nature, to transform in a generation a declining ecosystem. And those examples, we need to refresh our memory, (laughs) refresh our ambition that we really can do it together. The List Plateau in China is one of those examples of an absolutely decimated ecosystem that when the government of China said, we want to restore it, we cannot lose 7 million people a year and lose this this plateau altogether. This collapsed ecosystem needs to be restored. What do we need to do? 
And you know what they were told? They were told all the people living there, which at the time was 85 million people living in that valley, if I recall. They said everyone needs to stop what they're doing. They need to stop plowing the land, allowing their goats and sheep to graze. They need to stop cutting down trees. So China banned all that activity. And what did they do? They turned around and said, now you all have a job to help us restore this denuded plateau. And they reforested that area. And not only did it in a generation, did people recover enough wealth and food to live well, they were able to send all of their grandchildren. The majority of them have gone through college, which is an extraordinary turnaround from incredible impoverished realities in in the whole valley region. So we have incredible examples like this, and that's not the only one. We can do this. That was a turnaround in a generation. And literally, that's about what we have. Joe, I'm going to list a few things that are included in the document, which are referred to as the tipping points and planetary boundaries. But they're things that I think are top of mind for lots of people who are thinking about climate change. The boreal forest, the uh, fire and pests changing there, the Greenland ice sheet loss, the Arctic sea ice that we all know about, the permafrost and the methane cathrates that are uh, going to belch at some point in the Siberian Arctic Ocean area, the Amazon rainforest, West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, Atlantic circulation at the extremity, coral reefs, things like that. And then uh, more provincially, we think about uh, more floods or more desertification and the drying up of our, our soils. We think of those things, but are there tipping points on the human scale that are not in that list that we should be considering? Because I think that Climate change is a hydra-headed animal that, uh, or a many-tentacled octopus that has so many far-reaching consequences into our everyday life. Uh, you know, Don, thank you. That's a really interesting question. I mean, the, the short answer is yes, there are human-scale tipping points that are not on that list. And that, that list is what it needs to be, the, the geophysical uh, tipping points when a major system that helps to regulate the the climate system, the biosphere, breaks down enough that there's no way back. But there are there are tipping points in terms of human capability that I think we need to th- to be very conscious of. The ability of of people in their everyday lives to leverage the best science, even if they don't know they're doing that. They have access to it. They make smart decisions. They they do things in a way that's informed by evidence. That requires institutions to be functioning. It requires societies that value freedom of information. It requires uh, the funding of the intellectual and political infrastructure of such societies. You can't just sort of muscle your way out of planetary emergency. You can't just be assertive enough or decisive enough 
to use power to do it. it. It needs to be something that comes from a whole society. And if you have a situation where societies are breaking down because income inequality is out of control and getting worse, because institutions are losing trust and even failing, because the ability to hold people who do profit from injustice, hold them accountable, if that ability breaks down, goes away. When these things happen and societies start losing their self-regulating capability, we also lose our ability to respond to emergencies. And if we lose our ability to respond in a timely fashion, to bring science and innovation, policy, technology, and investment to confronting the planetary emergency that we face, it will get worse. And as it gets worse, it will also accelerate. And as it accelerates, these different forces will compound the impacts. So you have, you know, as global heating increases, you start to have more droughts. Glaciers start to melt, you have less fresh water. That causes ecosystems on the land to be less resilient, less robust. All of these things interact. And I do think that when we look at tipping points, it's very important for us to think about the ability of human beings to be responsible stewards in our own local existence, but also for the sake of a, of a sustainable relationship with planetary systems. Myra, I've been keeping track for the 30 years that I've been covering climate change as a journalist, and it differs uh, across the country, of course, but climate change as a major concern during election year was usually number 20 out of 20 questions asked. And oftentimes the questions were not asked in a very wise way by the pollsters. But that said, the good news is it is moving up. People seem to be understanding that climate does have an effect on their daily life, but not enough. And Joe brings up the point about whether the solution is mandated or whether the solution is based in uh, individual citizenry and action to change the, the future that we are facing if nothing is done. Do you have an idea of how we can corral the public to make a difference in how fast the rate of change toward fixing climate change? That's the one I'm really working on, Don, and I'm glad that we have a chance to talk to this point a bit with the audience, because this is where each of us have some influence. And, you know, one of the reasons that this conversation around climate change is further up the, the top 10 list or the top 20 list you were referencing is that people are beginning to recognize climate change in their lives uh, and, and notice the, uh, the interrelationship to climate change and how they're treated. And, you know, this is hits into equity and, and social justice and all those other areas, including food and, and water. So there's a lot at stake here. But the key, I feel, to all of this is to restore trust and to restore relationship. There's a reason that one of the top selling books right now is on emotional AI. Our own responses are being registered and captured to convert into a form of capitalism because the biggest driver 
in our human lives, in our societal lives, is how we feel and what we trust. And this is a part of the ecosystem that we cannot delineate, but it is the factor coming out of the planetary boundary science work. All the scientists agreed that the change that needed to occur for us to turn the corner on our behavior is a social change, change in the social dimension. So you know I'm out there on the ground, and one of the activities I've undertaken is this reconnection to the river. And I chose the river and the fresh waters because it is the most regenerative. At the end of the day, Don, and to all the listeners, we've got to figure out how to live within the safe operating space of the planet, our home, and all of its systems, and at the same time, be able to figure out how to live on the planet where we distribute the wealth and distribute the food so that there's no one going to bed hungry and that people can expect to have equity in their lives, whether they're living in a small island nation or on a continent far from America, the seat of the modern world, so to speak. And so this is, this is a big one. And I rely on the restoration of civic spaces. And I, I kind of like democracy too, <laughs> in a very big way. And so my goal is to restore those civic spaces as forms of democratic infrastructures where people can weigh in on what matters. And that's part of where the, the measurement needs to be, is on the true wealth of nations. The biggest question probably for all people who are listening to this podcast and who will listen to it in the future is what can I do? Is there anything that I can do? Does an individual have power to change what seems to be essentially an unstoppable force? Can we do it? The answer, it seems to me, is a resounding yes. We're going to continue our discussion on these subjects and more, and we would like your participation. If you have any questions or any comments, then you can go to our comment page on earthintel.org. If you want to know more about Geoversive, you can go to geoversive.net, and you can read everything that has been uh, written by among others, Joseph Robertson, in trying to uh, tell the story of what we can do. I'd like to thank everyone in the audience for joining us today, and we'll be back with a podcast in our next episode about uh, agriculture, farming, our food systems. Thank you very much, Joe and Myra, for being with us. Thank you, Don. It's great to be here and to to be able to illuminate this absolutely critical question for for everyone listening. Stay with us and let's do it again. You've been listening to Geoversive Earth Intelligence, the podcast. To all of you, thank you very much. And push out on your social media platforms uh, the idea that time spent listening to Geoversive Earth Intelligence is time well spent. We're building a conversation, building a community. 
Thank you very much for joining us, everyone.